This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, April 18th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. Before a live studio audience at the Cato Institute Benefactors Summit this month, I sat down with Cato's Corey DeAngelis and Neil McCluskey to talk about education, about why educational freedom is a better target than mere school choice. We started with a discussion about why teachers, if they were to examine the data, might ought to be pushing for more educational freedom rather than less. Uh, gentlemen, I want to start with this. Uh, when we were listening to Dr. Steve Perry, who spoke uh, at this event, and, and uh, with his permission, I'm going to put out most of his speech as a Cato Daily podcast. Um, and I felt like he was speaking directly to me. I am a parent of two small children. Uh, they are not of school age yet, but uh, as many people know, I call Louisville, Kentucky home. And uh, most recently, uh, hundreds of teachers in my home state, uh, particularly in my hometown of, of Louisville, have done the following. They've failed to show up for work uh, conveniently during a state legislative session. They've lied to their employers about why they failed to show up for work. These are called sick outs. Uh, they drove the school system to close on several consecutive days because of the sheer number of teachers who failed to show up for work and lied about why they did not want to go to work. Uh, and many of these same teachers used the opportunity of these several canceled school days to go to the state capitol to lobby to keep lawmakers from creating any new option to remove their children from a system that is apparently staffed by several hundred people who lie regularly and feel entitled to compel especially lower-income people to send their children to them every weekday for about nine months a year for 12 years. Um, so with that as my current uh, bugaboo in my hometown, um, <laughs> thank you. Um, what, Corey is the relationship between teacher wages and school choice. Why are these teachers, in your opinion, wrong to be lobbying for, uh, in addition, higher pay uh, and preventing school choice? Yeah, the, the first thing I'd like to say about the teacher strikes and the sick outs, you know, they all conveniently just happen to show up at the state capitol after all being sick, and they have these signs saying things like, we want higher pay, we want uh, more autonomy, and we want less privatization. And so... Really what stands out to me regarding what they have on their signs, they, they essentially have those three things that they want. Um, but what I've argued is that if they really want higher pay and they really want a better uh, classroom environment, more autonomy on the job, they, they should get rid of the third thing they're calling for, which is less school choice. They should actually be for arguing for more school choice. And the reason for that is that in the current education system, there's, there's something economists call a monopsony in the labor market. So essentially, if you want to be a K-12 educator in the United States, you essentially have one legitimate option is you have to take whatever the government's giving you in terms of salary and in terms of class size and autonomy on the job. Uh, so when school choice and competitive pressures come into the labor market, teacher salaries actually go up in the public school sector because they know that they're, might, they're probably going to lose their good teachers to competition. There's only five studies on this. All of them find statistically significant positive effects of school choice, whether that's private school choice in the form of voucher programs or public school choice in the form of charter school competition, uh, and they all show that teacher salaries go up in the traditional public school sector. All right, so uh, why aren't teachers cognizant of this and lobbying for the things that you say they ought to want? Well, they're, I mean, one of the largest parts of that is that they're being told that they need to strike for these three things, and the last thing is always tacked on to, to get rid of their employer's competition. And as in any other labor market, 
competition in the labor market is a good thing for, for, for employees, not necessarily for their employers. Neil, uh, uh, and I want to get back to some of your work on uh, school choice and the data you found. Neil, let's talk about higher education briefly. Yeah, yeah, okay. Particularly uh, how luxurious higher education has become ah. uh, uh, in the United States. Um, you sent me several pictures here. <laughs> and This is at Auburn. This is at LSU. This is at Texas Tech. Um, I want to go, as Rodney Dangerfield once did, back to school. <laughs> well, and the interesting thing is two of these schools are in the Final Four, which uh, they're being played tonight. So LSU, Texas Tech, maybe there is some correlation between the presence of leisure pools and, and athletic success. In fact, there very well may be. What this represents, other than a heck of a good time as a student, is an extreme excess of other people's money being put into higher education. And this is the root problem in higher ed. So we've heard a lot about skyrocketing costs, and absolutely true. Sticker price of college has gone way up. We've heard about kids who are not studying. We've heard about professors who often aren't teaching. They're doing research, which is far more remunerative. And all of this is enabled by the way we pay for college, which is massive subsidization that comes from you, the taxpayer, much of it, many of these are state schools. For state schools, a whole lot of that comes from state and local taxes. And then in addition to that, and much bigger, is that we have taxpayers giving money in the forms of grants and loans. We'll talk about how much the loans are really loans, but directly to students. And when you're using somebody else's money to pay for something, you are willing to demand a whole lot more that has very little to do with that thing that you're supposed to be getting. In the case of colleges, you're supposed to be getting an education, but increasingly, it's a good time that people are after. And I was just thinking about this, you know, actually just an hour or so ago. When I first started at Cato 15 years ago, I was talking about the colleges were advertising that, you know, we have the biggest climbing wall in the country, or Washington State University used to say, you know, we've got the biggest jacuzzi on the West Coast. And I could just imagine there was some dean somewhere, and I don't know whether you've heard this meme about somebody will do something bad and someone will do something worse, and somebody will say, you know, if you're that person who does something worse, hold my beer. <laughs> well, in college, that's literally what they would be saying because they're partying all the time. And some dean was like, no, really, hold my beer. I've got to write something down. Make water park to crush jacuzzi. <laughs> All right, so uh, I was speaking with your co-editor, uh, Todd Zawicki, of the book Unprofitable Schooling, which is available uh, outside. Um, and Todd was telling me of the student loans or young people or older people who have student loans. It, here's the data he provided me. 37% of people with student loans are current and paying down their balances. Yeah. 46% oh, are current, but their balances are increasing or remaining the same. Uh, part of that is people who have done like some sort of debt forgiveness program. They're working 10 years for the government or a nonprofit in order to achieve that debt forgiveness. 17% are delinquent or in default. Um, I think both of you uh, would agree that that doesn't sound like a loan. No. Uh, increasingly, we have taken the idea of loan but married it to loan forgiveness. Uh, and that's grown, you can go back to the second Bush administration, it increased over the Obama administration, this idea that 
Originally, the concept wasn't necessarily a horrible one of, well, we wouldn't give somebody a loan so that they could get an education that gave them the human capital to earn a whole lot more later and be more productive, and then they would make the taxpayer whole by repaying that money. Now, it's much better that that happened in the private sector, but this wasn't the worst idea the government's ever had. Uh, it's better than, I think, grants where you just say, take this money, make a whole lot more money in your future, and don't make whole the people you took it from. But we've said over and over, you can get this forgiven in a certain amount of time. Probably the most egregious program is the public service loan forgiveness, where we say, if you work in something that's nonprofit, preferably government, you can get your loans forgiven after 10 years of on-time payments. And that can be a lot of money forgiven, especially if you've gone to a professional school or a graduate school. And there's been polling of students, most of whom think they get a loan, but they'll probably never have to pay it back. So it's kind of become a grant just called a loan, although we do continue to have problems of people who are really often not prepared for college to do college work who take out a loan and can't pay it back and do default on it. And those are usually actually the smallest loans. And, uh, you know, the, the point that you've made uh, over and over with respect to higher education, with respect to the massive subsidies that uh, flow into it from the federal government and state governments, is that the number of seats just doesn't change. Like, on, on a, in a, in a short-term basis, the number of seats at a university doesn't change that much. Yeah, although they, they do grow over time. What doesn't happen is we, it, there's not a lot of evidence that we've increased the number of people who are prepared to do what we would have consul, considered college-level work. Though we have huge remediation rates, um, many people enter those remedial classes and not finish, and now there's a trend in schools to say, let's just forget about those remedial courses. Let's just let people enter uh, a regular course, even if they're not prepared to do with just sort of the basic writing and calculating they need to do. And of course, it's in the interest of the colleges often, depending on the type of college they are, but most are non-competitive admissions. Their interest is to take everybody and take their money. And so they will expand. It's just there's not an expansion of people who are ready for college. There's a big expansion of places called colleges who are happy to take their money and even give them something called a degree. All right, Corey, before we have these huge rates of remediation, we have people in high school, um, and uh, many of the people who come out of high school are not prepared for college. So why do you then make the case that one of the things that uh, parents are choosing when they choose among schools is not strictly, how's my kid going to do on tests? How prepared is my kid going to be for college? Why do, one, why do parents value those things? And why is it important that we pay attention to those things, things like safety, uh, and, and put them in the pantheon of what schools are supposed to be offering? Yeah, you know, we expect schools to do a lot of stuff for kids, not just shape standardized test scores. For all too long, researchers and, uh, you know, the higher education establishment has been focusing on, on student test scores, standardized test scores, because that's what we've had access to. But it takes a lot more than scores on a test to, you know, progress through college and have higher earnings as an adult. Some of the things are non-cognitive skills that can't be easily captured in a standardized test, like character skills, like uh, being around peers that don't influence you to have sex as a teenager and have kids as a teenager. It could really ruin your long-term prospects for a good life. Uh, similarly, if you don't have the character skills to, you know, 
work really hard. You might not get your degree. You might become involved with the criminal justice system. Uh, so, which brings me to my research. When I first started my PhD at the University of Arkansas, my first study linked the longest standing voucher program in the United States, the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program, to adult criminal activity. And there's only been two studies linking private school choice to crime. I've done both of them uh, with, with, private, uh, with Patrick Wolf, who was my advisor at the University of Arkansas. And we found that exposure to that program in eighth or ninth grade led to significant reductions in the likelihood that the kids grew up to become criminals and they were much less likely to, uh, uh, to have, uh, be involved in paternity suits as well. About a 38% reduction in the likelihood of uh, being involved in paternity suits, about a 53% reduction in drug-related crimes, and an 86% reduction in property damage crimes. And so it, it probably has something to do with what's going on in the private schools. Maybe they're not focusing so much on test scores. Maybe it's because there's less gang activity going on in, in private schools. Maybe it's because the schools are safer. Religion could have something to do with it. If you fear that the teacher is going to get you in trouble if you misbehave, that's one thing. But if you're fearing that a higher power is going to punish you as well, that could obviously lead to uh, less criminal convictions in the long run. Okay, so, uh, you know, teachers don't like being reduced to standardized test scores either. Mm -hmm. uh, but the answer to, from many, like teachers' unions, for example, may be, well, you can give them the test, but it can't count for anything. <laughs> uh, choice, in general, uh, is a way to transfer that reduction to test scores. I mean, when I was in high school, we, our high school was judged essentially by an average test score. Well, you know, by the same token, what, no parent cares about an average test score. No, they, they care about how the test scores are changing for their individual children, and they care about the other skills that are being shaped in the school as well. And it's funny that the same people in the public school system that argue against standardized test scores over and over argue for regulating private school voucher programs by using one single metric, a standardized test score. So they argue, hey, we have to do this all the time. They should have to do it too, so it's a level playing field. But Neil McCluskey and I have both argued for a long time that we should not regulate uh, from the top down, private school voucher programs. We've used that in the public system for a very long time because that was the only form of accountability that the public schools had was some type of top down accountability. But if you can have bottom up accountability through private school choice, it, you really don't have much of a need for relying so much on standardized test scores. And I've pointed out in the literature, and so have scholars, uh, uh, Patrick Wolf, uh, Michael McShane, and, and Colin Hitt uh, released a paper at uh, American Enterprise Institute finding that effects of choice schools, charter schools or private schools, on test scores do not accurately predict those same schools' effects on longer-term outcomes such as high school graduation, college enrollment, and college completion. So if, if the short-run measures aren't strong proxies for what we actually care about in the long run, stuff like reducing criminal activity, improving mental health, uh, improving graduation rates, we shouldn't place so much weight on standardized testing, especially when the schools have bottom-up accountability. I just throw in, I mean, I think this is an area where uh, specifically we at Cato have made a big difference. So for a long time, one of the roles we had was to, I think, argue within the school choice community of it's not enough to say, let's have a program that lets in a thousand kids. It's not enough to say, well, it works because we've seen test scores go up. School education is about so much more than can be captured in a test, in many tests. It's about what people's values are, what they desire. 
uh, out of life, what they think the good life is. It's often about what somebody thinks they should fund versus not fund. Should I be paying for a school that teaches X or not? And we've been making that argument. It's much bigger than that. And we've especially been involved heavily in trying to fight against centralization of control and dictating what the education system is. We were heavily involved in the Common Core. Um, and the Common Core came to be a term that people were started to use to subsume everything they hated about top-down education. It wasn't just about a particular set of standards anymore. It was starting really with No Child Left Behind, which was started in 2002. They were getting sick and tired of the federal government in particular telling everyone education will be reduced to a test score. We were in the forefront of fighting against that for a very long time, and especially against Common Core. And I've been able to say, shockingly, if you asked me four years ago, would I be able to say we're actually stepping back from centralization? I would have said no. But because of the outrage over Common Core, or the outrage that culminated with Common Core, the federal government uh, in 2015 actually reduce the amount of control they have over the K-12 system. It's not nearly where we want to be, but to see the federal government actually step back is a huge accomplishment and a major milestone, I think, in, in education policy. And I think we had a lot to do with that. I, and I, yes, I completely agree. I think the Cato Center for Educational Freedom has really moved the debate from should we have school choice at all to if we're going to have school choice, what should it look like? And in fact, just last year, we had a Cato Policy Forum titled what should school choice look like? Where we debated on this stage whether, you know, should we have private school choice, public school choice? Should we embrace both? Should we accept any type of choice that we can get? Uh, should, how regulated should school choice be? Should it be regulated based on test scores? Should we look at other things? And I think that's really moved the conversation forward. And, you know, as whereas other think tanks have been just embracing all, any type of school choice we can get, we've really been able to move the discussion to the very important details about the success of these programs. Uh, Neil, uh, and uh, to, to you also, Corey, the, the idea here on our, our panel is freedom is the target, right? So what, how do we get from here to there, and what start with, what does there look like? Well, what does there look like is a great question, and I think you would have to take what is there in a very long term. Right now, what we're trying to get to is people starting to assume that they should have some choice over where their kids go to school. Because the default for the last 100 years or so has been you go to your local public school. You go to the school you're zoned to. And people had, didn't really have a, many people didn't have a concept of, I should have an ability to choose a whole bunch of different schools without sacrificing my tax dollars to do it. I think we've seen over the last 20 years the public has started to get a mindset of they should have some meaningful input over where their kids go to school. And now we're moving away from this concept of, well, what constitutes a good school and the kind of school you should be able to choose is only about the test scores it gets. We do, though, ultimately down the line, want people to say everybody should have a choice of any kind of school they want. And I think ultimately we want people to say, and you pay for that largely with your own money, or money you get from other people voluntarily. And there are lots of ways that could happen. But it's so crucial to remember, if the money comes from someone else, you are compelling that person to support the education you like. Now, that's better than the idea we have now, where if a majority or any group can get enough political power, they can impose whatever they want. It's much better individuals make those decisions. 
But we want to move to, the, to where funders also can say, I don't want my money going to X, I want it going to Y, which is why we like scholarship tax credits, for instance, better than vouchers. Uh, speaking of students being essentially compelled to attend a school, their family might not be able to afford it, they have a hefty chunk of their uh, tax bill that goes to support a system of schools that they don't have any meaningful input in with respect to uh, where their kids attend. And inevitably, this leads to conflict, where uh, values come into conflict and, and uh, different, different people have to fight over what this school is going to look like, and we end up with a lot of uh, fights. Uh, here's a, here are a few of them. Um, this is the battle map uh, that uh, the Center for Educational Freedom has been compiling fights over uh, local control of schools. They're actually, it's even more specific than local control. So we have to remember that education is about nothing less than the shaping of human minds. That's why we cannot reduce it to a test score. That's why it is so freighted with so many values and people's identities. And that's what all these battles are. They're not every battle that we have by any means. You're not going to find anything in here about how do you teach algebra. These are only conflicts that have to do with values, moral values that people have, or about their personal identity. A whole lot of these are about religion. Is there too much religion in, the, in, a, in a public school? There are still public schools where there is prayer. There are still public schools where there are religious-themed displays during Christmas. Um, it's often about people who are religious, who say, I should not have my child exposed to, for instance, a sex education curriculum I don't like. There are 200-some, almost 300 battles over books that are assigned. And you've probably all seen book-banning battles about, well, can you still read Huckleberry Finn? Because there are parts of that that are offensive to people. And we have to understand there are lots of decent people, good people on all sides of these issues, but because we have one system of schools, they have to fight to win, to impose what they want on other people to get what they think is best for their child. And these are the most sort of painful, wrenching conflicts of all, where your personal values, your personal identity, are sort of attacked by the school system. And there are about 2,110 of these, last I checked. And I put them up a lot, so I should know the numbers. We've been collecting them since 2005. We didn't really start putting them up here in earnest till about 2011, 2013. And so, and this is just the tip of the iceberg. These are just the battles that we find by reading news accounts. There are no doubt small districts all over the place where this doesn't make media accounts that we see. And of course, lots of that empty space is because there are not really many people there. And if you were to zoom in, you'd find way more markers than you can see here because often it's marker upon marker upon marker in high-density areas where there are constant conflicts over values or identity-based things that happen in the school where people think, if this is imposed, it will push something on my child that I find abhorrent or insulting or immoral. I mean, it seems like an unsolvable problem in the public school sector that you're always going to have these types of battles because not everybody has the same values. Not everybody is the same. Kids are unique. People have uh, unique values. And I think the best way to move forward in the current system is something called an education savings account. So everybody in here has probably heard of a private school voucher as proposed by Milton Friedman, which vouchers have actually existed since the 1800s in Maine and Vermont. Uh, but regardless, an education savings account is like a voucher where if you 
opt out of your traditional public school, the money, instead of being in a voucher form, goes into a savings account, and you can spend that money on educational expenditures such as tutoring, private school tuition and fees, textbooks. So it really moves the needle from the discussion about school choice, which is like a voucher, to education choice. And I think that really allows parents to uh, customize the education for their own children, uh, and then it also uh, allows for more price differentiation in the market for schooling. And so I had to uh, point that out because we are in the Hayek Auditorium, uh, and that's just one of the reasons why it's uh, it's an improvement upon the voucher. And one last point, we uh, just it'll only take a second, I promise. We, this, when we have school choice as opposed to this, that's how you embrace a pluralist, diverse society. Is you allow people to uh, to obtain the education that's consistent with who they are. That's real. That's real pluralism. That's real embrace of diversity. It is not to say, as we've said through public schooling, well, let's take diverse people and force them into one mold. And I think that that's really a crucial thing to understand. And a theme this weekend has been, I think, can we stop being so tribal? Can we stop fighting? Well, one way we stop fighting is stop forcing people to fight to get what they believe in. Corey DeAngelis is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute, and Neil McCluskey directs the Cato Center for Educational Freedom. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.